This podcast is brought to you by bellacatering.com.au. Guys, it is an insane world out there. There are every single day new measures being uh, enacted by governments all across the world to stem the flow of COVID-19. So when you've got essential services like food catering companies who can deliver to your door and safely deliver things to your door, why go brave supermarkets? If you've got the means to order something in, bellacatering.com.au. They're one of the best caterers in Sydney. They've pivoted to home delivery during this crisis so that they can still keep their huge staff um, active and working for you and for your comfort. If you need some comfort food and you need a lot of it so you can save some in the fridge for multiple days worth of meals, there is literally no one else that you need to contact. Glenn and Maria and their team are amazing. Glenn as an individual is deeply questionable, uh, but Maria and the team are wonderful. Guys, this is just my little way uh, to help support them. Now, onto the show. Producer Star Redford was so intent on authenticity that he even flew actual garbage from the Washington Post waste paper baskets out to the set. All the President's Men does a good job of showing how much the work of the reporters was dull persistence and also does a good job of showing us what went into the decisions of editor Ben Bradley, Jason Robards in an Oscar-winning performance, and publisher Catherine Graham about what they needed in terms of proof in order to be able to publish the story. The movie shows an interesting range of moral choices and calibrations. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me today is another wonderful film critic, uh, one of the people who is so right in their review about this movie, which you would have heard in the opening preamble. But there's not many guests that can say this. I was an intern in the very building where the Watergate hearings were taking place and attended in person twice. That means that this person is a most essential guest. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Nell Minow to All the President's Minutes. Nell, thank you so much for being a part of the show. That is an insane, insane thing. (laughs) Well, it's even more insane because, of course, I live in Washington now. I'm a lawyer as well as a movie critic and and a Watergate junkie. So I'm very happy to be talking to you. And also, I I get random texts uh, so far in the lead-up, which I've loved from now, like, "Uh, yeah, I'm right next to the building that this happened. I'm right next to the car park. There's a little... I'm right next to the car park where Deep Throat spoke to Woodward. There's a little sign there now. I'm like, oh, my God, this is like a a virtual tour of Washington, D.C. and all the president's men that I'm getting uh, in advance. So great to talk to you. Like, can you tell me... I mean, I... It's it's almost impossible for me to fathom what this movie must mean to you as a person who I know is like a, a, a critical mind who respects it and loves it for its craft and for its sort of storytelling focus and for some of the things we heard in the opening preamble. But can I can I ask you to sort of talk about what it means for someone who is attending the hearings and then knows that something like this is coming to existence and then experiencing it? Like what what is all of that like? 
boy, it's almost impossible to describe. The summer that I was an intern on Capitol Hill, I was working for the senator from my home state of Illinois, uh, Adley Stevenson III, the uh, great-grandson of a vice president, the uh, son of a man who ran for president twice, was governor of Illinois. And um, when I applied for the job uh, a year before, I really had absolutely no idea what I was, that I would be getting into this. (laughs) And every day I would go to work and I would walk up, you know, it's called Capitol Hill for a reason. I would walk up the hill from the bus stop and there would be a long line of people outside the building waiting to get in and see it. Of course, it was on television, but people came from all over the country to see the hearings. And it was very, very, very exciting. And it seemed to me that almost every day, I would walk by somebody from my past, somebody that I went to summer school with, one of my teachers from grade school, everybody came to town uh, to see the Watergate hearings. And I, uh, since it was in the building, I did not have to wait in line. I obviously was working. And so I couldn't go there all the time. But I did go twice. I heard uh, Jeb Stewart Magruder and Ehrlichman um, testify. And and, uh, it was it was thrilling. It was also very, very confusing. Um, You know, as somebody who was what, 21 years old, uh, and about to go into my last year of college. um, You know, you're always trying to figure out is this the way things work? Is is, is it (laughs) this crazy all the time? Is this you know, uh, it, is, it, is it, this the foundation really... that I'm entering this system on? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And uh, also, uh, of course, I was reading the Washington Post every day, oh where Woodward and Bernstein were writing, and no one was paying any attention to them. And I remember calling my boyfriend from Washington, who is now my husband, and saying to him, "You know, I think people in the rest of the country should really be paying attention to this. This is this is really important stuff." Furthermore, uh, as a, as a summer intern on Capitol Hill, we were invited. Uh, they were very kind in reaching out to us, and they had all kinds of events to kind of teach us what was going on in Washington. And I was actually invited to a party at the White House and got to see Nixon. Oh my God! And he was a mess. He was a mess. <laughs> I think he was not antidepressants or something. And I remember looking at him give a speech. He was welcoming the Prime Minister of Japan, and thinking to myself, no matter what he did, it cannot be good for the country to put him under this much pressure because he is—he's about—he's he, on the verge of collapse. And of course, a year later. Uh, just as I was getting ready to start law school, he resigned. So, um, so a couple of years later, when I was still in law school and this movie came out, um, I was very, very, very interested in it. And my husband still teases me about this, and I hope you'll be on my side on this. Woodward and Bernstein were actually appearing on campus that night, the night that I wanted to go to the movie, and I said, no, I want to go to the movie. (laughs) 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 You're missing the real people. Um, but uh, but I did make that choice, and I still think it was the right one. It's one of my absolute favorite movies. Look, as a film geek, I think you have to see the movie. Like, if it's The Social Network or Mark Zuckerberg, <laughs> I'm going to go see The Social yeah. Network. You know, if it's Woodward and Bernstein, no offense to Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, who are both obviously well, the legends Goldman, at the center let's of this. Be honest. William Goldman is ten times the writer of of Woodward and Bernstein. They're they're wonderful people and they're American heroes, but they are not the greatest writers. I think they would be the first to tell you that. And I had a hard time getting through the book, All the President's Men, but the movie is gripping and very very true to what happened. And as you may know, I'm sure you do know since you're a scholar of the movie, they literally flew the garbage from the wastebaskets of the Washington Post out for the movie. They they meticulously yes. recreate. 
the office of the Washington Post. And so then, uh, you know, I went to law school, I moved to Washington. And now, as I said, I sort of wander around these locations for the movie all the time. (laughs) So I want to go back to one thing that you said. It's really interesting when the perception of Nixon especially as it played out in the media or at least the controlled perspective of him what he, was that he still definitely did have it together he was definitely deflecting you know this there there was no you know at least 12 months out to your point uh, from mm-hmm. from a scholarly perspective and from a media perspective it was like nixon's under pressure but he's still in charge and even though you know there's a wonderful podcast called slow burn which i'm, I'm sure that you're you're familiar I with listen to it yes. absolutely such a fantastic show and hoping to I have Le- hoping to have leon on the show on this show to talk um Good. all the president's man the movie with us but you know, they talk about his command, Nixon's command of, you know, this is just a hearing. This is, you know, this has got to go through. It's got to happen. It's all being negotiated. It's all part of the course. But it's so fascinating. A nice wrinkle to hear from you, Nell, there that even a year out, it's weary. He's weary um, because you would imagine that, you know, he's he knows the writings on the wall from the beginning. You know, in these some of these conversations that have been recorded, they know that they're going to have to buy the Watergate burglars to keep them to stay quiet and and then and, and the entire chain of command teeters for the next 12 months and then eventually collapses, you know, in, in really grandiose style in front of those Watergate hearings for you? Well, the real turning point, I think, was when John Dean decided yes. that he was going to come clean. Yes. And, uh, and once that started, uh, you know, I, I remember how uh, defiant, uh, John Ehrlichman was in the hearing. Um, and, uh, but nevertheless, you still had somebody who had been on the inside who was, who was telling the truth. And that was pretty devastating. I'll also say Washington, as you may know, is a very hot city in the summer. And at that time in the, uh, 73, um, not everything was air conditioned the way it is now. And, um, the hearing rooms were really packed in very tightly and it was oh, standing room been, only and stuffy. it was sweltering. And <laughs> one, there was a woman near me who literally fainted, oh my God. um, and couldn't fall down because we were, we were wedged <laughs> in so tightly. Well, at least that's good that the best time to faint is when you are in standing room only to be caught yeah, hopefully right, by a bunch right. of people around you. Exactly. But yeah, it was, it was, it was really, um, uh, it was difficult to process at all, but it was also in Washington, of course, the primary topic of conversation at the same time. And I recommend this podcast as well, the Rachel Maddow podcast about Spiro Agnew. Mm. I remember also talking to my then boyfriend and saying, is anybody paying attention to this Spiro Agnew stuff? Because he's <laughs> in a lot of trouble too. And of course, um, he was out, uh, quite soon. Yes. And it's it's like this is the the brilliance I think of the film is the the and, and particularly of the structure is that it 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 doesn't it doesn't discount the world that's going around them but it makes a very deliberate choice to be focused in and hone in very specifically on these guys in this very unique moment in time because it's like you know I- even in reading the book. It's it's not as it, it's almost like once you get past a certain point, 
you need something like a podcast or you need something that's got a lot more breadth to actually capture all of the weird things that start to get unearthed by the trial, that start to get unearthed by the final days. And like those reports just get more thorough and more weird and there's more conspiracy theories and there's all those things that, you know, all the listeners of Slow Burn love, but it's like those things start to manifest and, and, and accelerate. So what I love continuing to watch is that this keeps me so riveted and so laser focused, but just like everything else in the world and all the inferences happening, the way that all the other journalists are constantly working, all the other people are constantly working, is there's all this other stuff that's always happening. And these guys are just focusing on their very specific patch that they're sort of targeted uh, targeted on and laser focused on. Yeah. And, you know, you don't know from this movie, and I didn't learn until much later that uh, – Mark Felt, who is Deep Throat, was leaking to two other journalists as well. Mm. Um, and uh, one thing I learned from the Slow Burn podcast, because as I said, I'm a Watergate junkie. And when all, when I first was a young lawyer in Washington, that was when all the books by all the various parties started coming out. <laughs> yes. The Theodore White book and the Leon Jaworski book and all these books. And I, and I started reading them. And, uh, you know, I did not know... Of course, I knew about Martha Mitchell because she was quite the flamboyant character, but I did not know that the reason they hid the newspaper from her the very first day, the very first story about the Watergate burglars, is that she knew McCord, that he had been her personal security guy, and that if she had seen that story, which she ultimately did, she knew right away that the White House was involved, that it went all the way to the top. It's so fascinating. It was her nickname Minnie, Martha? Was it Minnie, Mc- or did I get that wrong? Martha Mitchell. Martha, Martha Mitchell. Mitchell. Ma- Martha Mitchell. Was her nickname Minnie? Yeah. I-, I feel like... No. The- oh, okay, sorry. It's like... No, that's right. That's <laughs> okay. right. We've got, to- we've got to shut up Martha. There's a tape, like actually a tape of Nixon saying we've got to shut her up. That's right. That's can- right. Can and you- and there's a- and and then she was on the phone with the reporter saying they're sticking needles in my ass because they were... And which they were. They were <laughs> drugging her. It was a mess. What was it like... So, and, and this is what I want to ask just from like a, I don't know, like a water cooler consensus at the mm-hmm. time. What was it like being in Washington when all this is happening? It has literally transfixed the country. It is occupying all of the national networks, the public network, public broadcasters at the time. It's occupying everything. And then Hollywood says we're making a movie. Is the immediate well, is the immediate reflexive consensus that it's going to be terrible, that it's going to be, especially, you know, obviously Robert Redford is a huge star, so that comes with a certain amount of uh, prestige, I guess. But um, what was the feeling like at the time uh, around it's in production, this is happening? Um, well, as I said, the, the book is hard to read. Uh, yes. They are not great writers. And I think people were afraid it was going to get uh, mired in the details. People yes. were afraid... Yes, Robert Redford, no bigger star in the country than Robert Redford. Um, but uh, people were afraid it was going to be, you know, Butch and Sundance uh, <laughs> work for the Washington Post. <laughs> I mean, same screenwriter. Same screenwriter. Same star. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think people people were very surprised by how, i just got to say how sophisticated it was, how nuanced and insightful it was and you know I did get to meet Ben Bradley when I moved out here and 
I'm sorry, but Jason Robards is a better Ben Bradley than Ben Bradley, and <laughs> I've met Bob Woodward, and Robert Redford is a better Bob Woodward. I think I think Bob Woodward would agree that Robert Redford is a better Bob Rob, Woodward. Robert Redford's a better anyone. Robert Redford's a That's better like me. That's Errol, Errol Flynn is a better Robin Hood than Robin Hood. <laughs> yes. You know, it's just that we don't have Robin Hood to talk to about it. But, but, but you know, even when I saw the movie The Post – uh, you know, I was like, you know, Tom Hanks, you're great, but I'm sorry, Jason Robards Jason is Robards. Ben Bradley. He's Bradley. That's one of the great performances of all time. And Jane Alexander, who I just saw on Broadway uh, two weeks ago uh, as the bookkeeper, um, you know, she's just tremendous too. Phenomenal. Yeah. And and such an integral role. And it starts out in basic darkness for Jane Alexander. She's there like hiding behind the door, and her sister comes in. What this movie is loaded. With some every, uh, every minute, I, I I can't tell you the number of times I've watched it. I really love it. Well, that is the perfect cue. That is the perfect segue <laughs> for us to jump into the minute we're going to talk about, folks. Okay, as you would have read um, on your podcasting app or on the article uh, post that you're reading right now, uh, Nell and I are going to talk about the 24th minute of Alan Jacob Pool's uh, 1976 masterpiece, All the President's Men, um, and we're going to have a watch of it together. You guys are going to listen along, and then we're going to come back and talk about. It. If you're going to do it, do it right. Here are my notes. If you're going to hype it, hype it with the facts. I don't mind what you did. I mind the way you did it. Woodward, Bernstein, you're both on the story. Now don't fuck it up. Hey, Stu, what's the name of that girl you bombed out with the works in Colson's office? Karen Lyon. Why are you looking at me like that? You're attractive. You are very attractive. You know, my girlfriend told me to watch out for you. Who? I'm not giving any names. Stuba said you work for Colson. Stuba's crazy. I never worked for Colson. That's what he said. I worked for an assistant. Colson was really big on secrets anyway. Even if I had worked for him. One of the great, one of the greatest pep talk lines of all time. (laughs) That's such a well, and it's also one of the great. I'm going to use a movie term and say one of the great meet cutes of all time, (laughs) Uh, because you know, you know, for the bromance, uh, uh, you know, that's it's such a wonderful moment because that's the first time that they interact with each other, and you see immediately how different they are. You 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 see that uh, you know uh, Woodward is the waspy newcomer. And Bernstein is the scrappy, uh, <laughs> I've been here forever guy and pushy. You know, I've got to, I'm just polishing it. You didn't have, you didn't have this in the right, you know, part of the story. And that's really great. And then uh, we move over and we get our first look at what the technique is for interviewing people that they are willing to use personal connections, they're willing to flatter people to, to, to get the story. And as I told you, that's the top of what at that time was called the Hotel Washington. It's now called the Hotel W, which is about a block, you know, there's the White House and then next to the White House is the Treasury Department. And across the street from the Treasury Department is uh, is the, the hotel. And I've been to parties at the on that roof. It's so good that it's such a choice 
So obviously filming in Washington is so essential, like for all of the exteriors. They really go to painstaking lengths to make sure that they're there. Obviously the recreation of this, uh, the, the newsroom is in Burbank in LA. Like you said, they right. flew out the, the garbage um, and freaked out uh, Woodward and Bernstein and Bradley who visited the set going, what the right. hell have you done? Right. Um, seeing the carbon copy of their offices. But the couple of things, I love how you said it's a meet-cute because it 100% is. Um, there is a tension in that moment that's so beautiful. Um, but also just from like an experiential choice, if you're a person like, you know, I can't imagine. A couple of my favorite movies of all time are obviously All the President's Men and the previous movie that I did as a podcast, Lengthily, Heat. And I just can't imagine wandering around the sets like you do every day. But one moment of this film that like soars for me is in this moment. And it's in the middle of a question she's answering and she talks over a plane and Mm -hmm. it's so you as a film critic knows like there's such a textural detail like of what the experience of like to be on the top of what was the washington hotel now the w that you can't you can't replicate you can't you can't you can't replicate it take to take exactly it's across the it's across the potomac river from national airport yes so you're gonna have planes there all the time and 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 uh, and they chose not to cut around that yes i love that because that made it very real and Mm. the wind is all over the place too that is you could tell that is not a set that is that is the real thing not a closed set such a great Mm -hmm. detail not a closed set the sound of planes you would imagine that they basically have to take whole takes so that the sound of planes matches People talking right. over them. Like there's right. those crazy details where you're like, this would have been for an, what is arguably like a nothing scene in a, in, in a lot of investigative movies. It's one of the first sort of showing the lengths of the different interview techniques that they're doing. But arguably you'd say, oh, no, it's a small scene. Can we shoot it somewhere where it's quiet so we can just shoot it in two seconds? But for the the ethos of this movie is no, we're going here because it happened here. We're going here yeah. and the noise is going to happen and it's in the daytime and it's in the summer and we're going to shoot it and it is what it is. And that is the that is the texture of this movie. That is the ethos of this movie. And so it just really starts to – it's starting to bloom and flex into itself uh, from, a, from a technical perspective, which I just adore in this minute. And I just love – I mean, look, yeah. more meet-cutes in movies, you would know this now, need Jack Warden – just to tell you to not fuck it up, like you know, really, like that's just like any rom com. You need you need the I old cantankerous you. Harry Rosenfeld, Jack Warden. Mm-hmm. Come on, guys, don't fuck mm-hmm. this up. This meet cute needs to be beautiful. Yeah, one of my favorite things in the movie is the interactions between Jack Warden and Martin Balsam and uh, Jason Robards because they're so good at playing exactly those people seen everything you know when they argue about what should be on the front page and all that i love that the guy's trying to sell them new you know puzzles and cartoons i love that um and and i love all the scenes you know in a way this is kind of it kind of harks back to the classic humphrey bogart um detective movies because they're going around and and asking questions just like a detective would do and you look at this interaction this very brief interaction where he is kind of ruthless he's flattering her he's flirting with her and uh he he and then you see later on they go after their own colleague Lindsay krauss yes and uh, she says boy you guys are killers yes um and and, yeah. and what's funny is that bernstein and hoffman's performance he's like the unabashed 
killer. Yeah. Like she's yeah. like, you are a relentless flirt right now. Right. Like, and I love her so much as an mm-hmm. interview subject because she's like, I know you're relentlessly flirting with me. Like I'm not, yeah. this is no mystery right. to me. <laughs> you know? Right. I, 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 know. I know exactly what you're doing. Um, so I, I love, 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 love that. Um, mm-hmm. this, the secondary moment, which, which is great. And you talk about Lindsay Krauss is the, uh, I spoke to a, a really great, f- um, uh, showrunner and screenwriter and, uh, former journalist, Dana Calvo. And she talks about it. The, one of the past scenes, Redford, Redford's, um, discussion with, uh, and an interrogation of Markham, Nicholas Costa. Mm-hmm. She's like that. That mm-hmm. that interrogation should be taught in journalism school because you're just mm-hmm. eking out. If you just tell me this, I will go away from you. And I think Bernstein's right. like Bernstein's much. He's not. A, he doesn't. He doesn't temper any of that. He wants them to know right out on Front Street. I. Mm-hmm. If you just give me something, I'll I'll leave you alone. But he's, but Woodward right. and 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 Redford as that would never say that. But the other, the flip side is that he will. Well, you just have reminded me of another one of my absolute favorite moments, which is when he's on the phone with that guy talking to him about the check and why the check has his name on it. Yes. And the guy says, "I probably shouldn't tell you this." And Woodward just goes, <laughs> "You know, he's just." He's, <laughs> and he's trying to be calm and he's, you know, and all of that. And I have been on both sides of that. I've been interviewed many, many times and I have interviewed people many, many times. And I am, I wouldn't say that I'm a great interviewer, but I have been interviewed by people who are great. And the way they don't respond so that you feel obligated to kind of fill the empty space, yes. that's, that is, that is very tough. And, um, and these guys, yeah, they really are great. And yeah, the, it's, it's a, it's a it's an art, and especially well, and with with Jane Alexander, where he just keeps saying, "Yeah, yeah, I'll go in just a minute, but let me just you know ask you one more thing." <laughs> yeah, and he's just like, "Can I have a cup of coffee?" Oh, just you know. a cup of coffee. I just and these are just from these notes are just from my memory, and mm-hmm. he just does it so quietly. He's like, "Just what would you say?" This mm-hmm. so perfect, such a such a perfect thing. Yeah, and they say she says, "I don't want to say," and he says, "Does it begin with an M?" You know, I mean, he you know he. <laughs> <laughs> this hasn't been. Uh, this is what I would say to you, as a, as like a film critic and someone who's discussed films. You don't usually have to do that with an actor. You don't have to eke out questions <laughs> or a director with, you know, which yeah, actor well, was trouble. Actors, Did it actors begin generally with a- like to talk about themselves, but uh, what I have found in doing interviews is that, um, particularly successful actors, uh, first of all, they've been interviewed so many times. They're very protective. They don't want to talk about that. I never ask them about their personal lives, but they're very nervous about, they don't, you know, they're very protective of that. And I, if I have my choice, I much prefer to talk to directors and writers. I find that they're easier to talk to. Yes. Yes. Um, because they've had to think about it a little bit more. And a lot of actors, like you said, is protective. They're mm-hmm. protective. They're protective. About- and also they're not, I mean, writers are very good with language. Yes. <laughs> and that's what you're looking for if you're interviewing them. You want just some very distinctive quote that you can use, and the writers are pretty good with that. Yes. You walk around every day in the set of one of your favorite movies, and it's now, mm-hmm. you know, where are we, 24, oh, sorry, 44 years old. Correct. It is now nearly 44 years old. What? What are some of those, like, you know, you're a film critic, so you examine it. What is that 
have you been able to find or have you got a theory on exactly what that repeatable, reconsumable quality that this film has? Because I, this is part of my ultimate, I guess, a desire to do this project and to undertake it is because even as I was doing my last project, One Heat Minute, um, when I wasn't watching Heat, I people were like, oh, you must be watching Heat all the time. I said, yes, in preparation. I've seen the movie probably more than any other human being on the face of the earth. But when I was watching something casually, I continually found myself going back and watching all the president's men. I would just put it on and it would sit there and mm-hmm. I would go about my day or have a chore or hang out with one of my kids and um, or both of them when they were little babies. So uh, as we were going through this, what have you found like going back to it over and over again that like, what is that quality? What, wh- why does this movie have it on such a familiar subject and so few tend to have it? Yeah. Uh, I think um, uh, there are a, a couple of different reasons for it. One is that, you know, there are only basically seven plots to stories and (laughs) and (laughs) second only to the road trip, you know, going back to uh, Odysseus um, and the Wizard of Oz and um, (laughs) Midnight Run, you know, uh, which is, I would say, the number one uh, plot for a movie. After that, you're definitely one of my people now. I'm so happy we did this. Just want to say that to you on air. Thank you. I'm I'm having a great time. This is wonderful. When I I read about what you were doing, I literally said, I think I was born to do this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But second only to that is the the plot that we all uh, really warp to, and that's uh, the underdog. And uh, and the underdog triumphing over power, um, corrupt power, Uh, whether you're talking about Robin Hood. Uh, another one of my favorite movies, uh, or you're talking about uh, particularly a true story, Watergate, one that we all live through and that we're all still struggling to understand uh, how that could all happen. And you think about, you know, there's been an opera about it. There's been, uh, you know, Frost Nixon. That, you know, we're we're you know just like Shakespeare wrote about all the kings. We're going to be sorting through this one for for a long, long time. And from a number of different perspectives, there was the Deep Throat movie. So I think, you know, there's just something so compelling about somebody, the most powerful person in the world. Yes. Being brought down by two young reporters from the metro section. They weren't even on this. <laughs> they know very well from the movie. They're not even the political people. The political people no. didn't get the story. So whether you're talking about, you know, a scrappy underdog team that takes on the you know the the bad news bears or whatever you know it's the same you've got all of those elements you've got the david and goliath of all time yes the the last people that you would think and throughout they show such integrity and ingenuity and courage um that we are just rooting for them the whole way and then i don't think you can underestimate uh the contribution of william goldman um, who, you know, contributed the most memorable line in the movie, follow the money. Uh, Deep Throat never said that. Um, <laughs> that was William Goldman's idea. But it encapsulated uh, some a lot of very good stuff. Yes. Um, so William Goldman, not that he's not appreciated, he did get an Oscar for it, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, but he put a structure on it. You know, when, when I was there going through it, um, 
and the enemies list was coming out and the tapes were coming out and it was so crazy there was so much it was so easy to get lost in the forest and he just said I just really quickly for folks who, who may not know just I want to say Nell is referring to when she's talking about not only the tapes because I know that people on the show would know that Nixon recorded his conversations but there was a an, a famous enemies list that he kept of uh, enemies with like a hundred or so cer- certain individuals political enemies number one was Teddy Kennedy um, which is so apt because that actually follows on in the scene so if you're wondering what the enemies list is in isolation do some googling at the end of this I might put a link in the description if I find it but it's it is it is a fascinating and hilarious read yeah and I was in Senator Stevenson's office when the revelation of the enemies list came out and they Xeroxed it in, in my office because it was <laughs> the nearest one. So yeah, so it was very exciting. So you had all these different details and it was so hard to get your head around it. And I'll, I'll tell you my ultimate thought about Watergate uh, in a minute. But, um, you know, uh, William Goldman took a lot of trees and he figured out which were the trees that would make a very compelling dramatic um film and he ended it in a kind of ambiguous moment mm. nixon's getting reelected. not to spoiler alert but that's what's coming up <laughs> and uh and you know so i think i think that's one reason so you've got you've got the underdog you've got the uh incredible david and goliath story you've got a brilliant script from william goldman and at the end of the day, you know, when I ca- when I came to Washington, and as I said, all just as I arrived here as a young lawyer working in the government, um, all of the all of the books were starting to come out from all of the participants, and I read a bunch of them. And um, it took me a long time to conclude that it was just hubris and stupidity, basically, yes. um, that was behind it. I kept thinking there must be some, I must be missing something. All these smart, powerful, successful people, there must be something I'm missing. But I, I ultimately concluded that that was what it was. And I think your great point of William Goldman being able to synthesize something, and maybe it is a bit of deep throat, and maybe it is creative license. These are not very bright guys. Like, right. that just flabbergasts you. I think that that and is actually, it's a huge element, because you're like, how... Don't these guys know, like, these guys are in charge of these huge mechanisms that would foil plots like this at the snap of a finger. So to yes. think that they're not being watched, it, it it can only be hubris. I think it's a great point because yeah. it's such a challenge. You know, I, I too, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely going to grab your reading list um, suggestion because I've been myself as part <laughs> of this project pouring over things. So now I'm, you know, going back and assembling if there's any missed uh, uh, books and things like that it, on that list. There's no question that uh, none of the books come close to the Slow Burn podcast in terms of really, uh, I think it took time and perspective. You know, obviously the books I read were all kind of self-serving. I read yes. the the Magruder book because, you know, I heard him testify, so I wanted to read that. And I read the uh, Leon Jaworski book, and I think uh, Judge Sirica wrote a book. And, um, and none of them really answered the question for me of what were they thinking, <laughs> you know. Um, and uh, until I, you know, had worked a few years myself and seen how offices up. you know factor where everybody just you know people surround themselves i've actually spent my career as a lawyer looking at failing organizations and trying to figure out why they fail so perhaps that's all goes back to watergate it's so interesting and it's really funny there's a great there is a great book i want to recommend it was by a british author called fred emery it's just called watergate and um Mm. i found it quite refreshing after reading some of the american 
books on it to mm-hmm. get like an outsider, like trying to mm-hmm. have some cognitive distance away from what was happening. But it's really fascinating. Like you said, it's just like when you're examining things that are going to fail, it, it and, and especially when you like looking up hierarchical powers to like certain points, like it can literally be hubristic. Like it doesn't like it, there can be a, a failing point. But like you said um, with Martha Mitchell before, it's like once she knows that a certain person is involved, she can trigger instantaneously that it, that person at the top knows what's going on. Like it's not exactly. just an outside an outside something that no one knows what's going on. And, you know, I'm always shocked by how people think they can keep secrets because they, they can't. Not in and, a public space like that. You just yeah. think, you know, everything's so, monitored. Like, I mean, maybe that's our 20th, you know, sorry, 21st century thinking rather than 20th century thinking is that like in the 21st century, if you've ever worked for a corporate company. They were company, making tapes. Yeah. <laughs> they were recording tapes. That, yeah. Know? Not only is, not only are they recording, but also like yeah. in, in the 21st century, if you're, you know, if you're in the post-Snowden world, like mm-hmm. you, you, you sticky tape up the camera sometimes on your laptop or you sticky tape right. the camera on your phone or you deactivate or use certain brands so you can turn things off. You, you know, for example, myself, like, my PlayStation keeps asking me if I want to use voice activation and I keep saying no. Like, I don't want right. you listening to everything. <laughs> you probably are, but I don't want you listening to everything. So it's just one of those exactly. things that it just seems so crazy that it's like that. But I think I think you probably hit the nail on the head. It's one of those things of hubris. And what's strange is that I watched Apollo 11 this year. Did you get a chance mm-hmm. to see it now? Yes, of course. Mm-hmm. A beautiful documentary. Um, Absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. And you know, restored from this stunning footage that had been thought to be lost for many years and this reassembly of this, you know, this incredible, you know, time of human ingenuity. And it's so funny to see Nixon there, who is this articulate and very diplomatically aware and also seemingly so cognizant of the historical significance of his contribution to conversations and discussions of what is going on in the world and using that as a peace tool rather than a a chess beat. And you look at him and you go, this guy did something that dopey, not too much later than this. I think, you know, you make, and this is something I see over and over again, you make your worst mistakes when you forget that the ends don't justify the means. And I, and, and to me, the most heartbreaking moment in all the president's men is the Donald Segretti interview. Oh yeah. Because with Robert Walden playing Donald Segretti so beautifully. And he's unforgettable, Robert Walden. He's unforgettable. Yeah. Like he, he comes in and. He's, and he says, he says you're 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 sitting by the phone, and your old college friend calls and says, "Come work in the White House. How are you going to say no to that?" And the problem is, and I see this so often, is that you get there and you say, "I guess this is how things are done here." Yes. And and nobody ever says, even even John Dean, he went along and he went along and he went along. So. And. Um... That's one thing in the Slow Burn podcast, which is like when they were talking about, you know, when they were having some of these crazy meetings and, you know, when things were coming on the table, like capturing people and imprisoning them or sending them to Mexico, they're like, tell me how you had a second meeting with a person that's that nuts. Well, how do you how do you burgle uh, Ellsberg's psychiatrist? Yes. You know, (laughs) (laughs) It's just how do you you burgle the DNC? And the thing that's 
I mean, obviously, I've been to the Watergate many times, so that's another another place. And I, 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 you are you are such a junkie. You probably already know this, but across the street from the Watergate was a Howard Johnson's, and they had somebody staked out there who was supposed to call them if a police car showed up. Yes. And when we see in the movie, Frank Wiltz, the um, the security guy, saw the tape on the again so stupid the tape on the on the door he called it in and the marked police car was busy so they sent an, an unmarked police car. car yeah and that's why the stakeout the the lookout was not able to warn them yeah just that activity in this film it's portrayed as there's activity here we don't know exactly know what it is so funny yeah. that frank wills plays frank wills yes Yes. It's crazy. And I think it's a wonderful touch. It's a nice touch. It's something I only learned doing yeah. this podcast. And also then Frank Wills doesn't get to go on to do too much later because you would imagine... He in the did Nixon, not have a good life. You know. Yeah. And the Nixon presidency yeah. is not kind to anyone who starts this starts this process, unfortunately. Well, it's interesting to me that living in Washington that... Um, the subject of Watergate has been discussed more in the last year than any time that I've lived here for 42 years, uh, obviously because of the impeachment that's yes. going on and people are people are um, looking for parallels. And uh, so it's very, you know, all that is very present in our in our minds. And it's really interesting uh, along the impeachment proceedings and even in the Mueller investigation, um, the the corollary moments are like there is direct evidence that at the top he's asking underlings, the president of the United States is asking underlings to do illegal things. And those yeah. people, unlike the folks in Watergate, right. didn't do it. <laughs> they just, right. they ignored right. direct orders that would have implicated them. So if there's any lesson from Watergate, at least taught that. But then what it taught was that there's seemingly no, the lack of that sort of execution. But we don't have a, we don't seem to have a Sam Irvin, you know, yes. and, and all that. Yeah. You know, you know, the movie, I'm sure. Uh, first of all, I want to say that you're to your point of, of an outsider having a, a better perspective. Um, I certainly thought that about 12 years a slave. I was, I was pleased that that was made by somebody outside the United States. I thought that that was, that was necessary, yes. but I think in a way that that's what made the slow burn podcast so good because they're, they are American, but none of them were born when that was going on. Yes. And I, I kept getting very upset because they would say things like, I never heard of Martha Mitchell, you know, yeah. and, but that's, that's the way it goes. Um, and uh, that's that's how history is. And uh, and people that we read about every day in the newspaper today, our grandchildren will have no idea who they are. Um, as a matter of fact, I wrote a paper in college about Alger Hiss, who had been a front page story for a year. Um, but uh, none, nobody in my class had ever heard of him. And my teacher <laughs> remarked that, you know, if, if it had been 10 years before, everybody would know who he was. He was uh, one of the highest placed people in um, in uh, in the government and one of the most respected. And he uh, either did or didn't, depending on who you believe, um, passed uh, <laughs> nuclear secrets to the Russians. <laughs> and that was, of course, quite a big story. But um, now you have to be kind of a specialist to know about it. It's really... It's really strange. I, one one thing I want to roll back is 
it's so funny that hierarchically the this underdog story has the metro desk all over it and i i love yeah. talking to you because you know the concepts of metro v national v politics is such a lost it's a lost art to so many publications in the world. Like I, I've, I think I've even talked on this podcast about how I fantasize, you know, one day a, a film publication could come along and I could sit on the Sydney Metro desk. Like I don't need to be national. <laughs> I'm happy. I would just love to sit on the Sydney Metro desk, occasionally get get a shoulder tap to, to do the national story or something like that and talk yeah. to my fellow Metro desk colleagues and at other cities um, in the publication just out of pure silly fantasy. But I, I'm mm. just really interested to, to hear you talk earlier around just the stream of consciousness at the time when you're experiencing it and it's it it all these details and all these things and i think maybe that's what what makes this so damn digestible as well is that concept of when you're just being flooded with these new details and the facts are coming out and especially when people like drop a bomb like dean and and like everything comes out and it's so incendiary it like it it would be hard even to keep a pace with all of the big details because it's like you know back in that back in that time when you're reading the paper above the fold it's like there are like three front page stories a day and there's only one front page <laughs> you know so it's that's like, right it, and and right and you know it's always true that when you look backward there's an inevitability to it yes um because we know how it turned out. Yes. But at the time you're going through it, you have no idea where it's going and you have no idea which details are going to be important in the long run and which are not. And this movie both conveys that as they make mistakes and they have miscommunications and they go through blind alleys. And it also perpetuates that idea of inevitability because we know from the beginning um, not just because of history, but we know because we go to movies, these guys are not going to fail. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we at least get to believe it a few times, which is nice. Yeah, yeah. What do you think yeah. is so satisfying about what ultimately people call an ambiguous and dissatisfying ending of this movie? What's so well, satif- satisfying we, about we a have... man in a bathrobe on a lawn telling you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We have we have the best of both worlds, really, uh, with that ending. I think the ending is absolutely terrific, and many movies are very good up until the last ten percent, and then they have no idea what they're doing. So <laughs> I, th- this ending is very good. A because it's historically true, you know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that is that is what happened. It took another year uh, to get them out. Um, August of seventy four, uh, and B because. Um, you know, it, I keep thinking back to the Greek movie Z, yes. uh, which is very similar. It's Z is like the Greek, uh, all the president's men, <laughs> which, which ends with saying, and this one went to jail and this one you're going, yay, yay, yay. And then it, it, not so good. It, you know, uh, our hero, uh, doesn't end up so well. So, um, so I think there's a reality to it. We know, we know watching the movie by the time the movie came out, we know where this is going. Nixon is going to be disgraced. He is going to have to leave office, uh, be the first president to resign. But, um, but uh, so we know that ultimately to the extent that that's a triumph or that's a happy ending for this investigation, um, that's good. But we also know that, um, 
newspapers come out every day, news changes every day. They may yes. have had a good day today, but that um, doesn't mean anything about tomorrow. And I think that's a very real experience. So I think you have the best of both worlds there. You know that ultimately the one thing they're working on is going to go successfully, but it's just that's life. And as you know, uh, Bob Woodward followed this up with one of the worst failures in the history of journalism um, <laughs> with <laughs> the Janet Cook story yes. uh, because he had humorous and he he said, uh, you know, they gave him a big job and they and he said, all right, we're going to just we're going to have Watergate stories all over the place. And they didn't uh, they they didn't check their facts and they um, they could not have done worse. It's so, so funny. Yeah, it's it's so funny. And this whole period is so goddamn fascinating. It's so and it's interesting talking to you because. You know, aside from the movie providing like clarity that day to day news can't, and it's like, and but approaching it in a way that's not, that doesn't dismiss any of the facts, but just sort of like laser focuses in so that you're not getting caught in extemporaneous information. Like time will pass and it's indeterminate, but you know that a stack of time is gone. You know, when they're sitting slumped in chairs eating fast food and they're just like, I just don't know how much longer I can do this. And they're repeating yeah. lists. It's, it's, yeah. it's got that agony. But yeah, it's really interesting about the, the fallout. And it's so funny is because there's those huge moments and then there's whole big stacks of the career that takes to build back that credibility. And then when you hear about, you know, Woodward writing a book on Trump, you know, the people's first reaction was like, yes, yes, he's back. He's going to do it. And it's like, it doesn't have... That's not me- who he is. It's That's not, who, not he- who he is. It's not who he is. It doesn't have the same impact. No, it's not who he is. And uh, another one of my favorite moments in the movie is the one in the Library of Congress. I told you I was there this week. And because you really see just how hard they worked. I mean... They just sat there and read through all those slips of paper. Every every bit, every bit. And that wonderful shot overhead. <laughs> the overhead shot know. that comes up. That's the classic. That's the classic yeah. shot of. <laughs> so, I, I just can't imagine what it feels like to go through every day. Has this movie diminished in your in your mind at a, at any point, or has it only gotten better with time and? And especially with like prescience right now and being talked about over and over again. Have people started putting on little repertory theaters playing all the president's men <laughs> in Washington? Have they started doing that? Uh, no, um, uh, I did it. I, you know, when, when, when I started to, uh, feel very dispirited about things that were going on here, I put it on and watched it again. <laughs> um, not at all. It, it, it is, as you said, it's a movie that it just has stood this test of time so beautifully. I have friends that work for the Washington Post and they're not in the same building anymore, but, um, I used to <clears throat> go visit them. And I would see when I first went, it did look very much like it did in the movie. And then everybody had computers on their desks and, you know, and this changed and that changed. And No one and, wrestling uh, with a phone book to get someone's no, number from another no, state. No, 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 no. Yeah, I saw that in the movie Spotlight. That was like the last time ever <laughs> that they were sitting on the floor with the phone books. So, uh, you know, so I, in a way, it's almost like um, it's a time capsule. Uh, it's, it's like marking your children's heights on the wall is a, you know, that I measure against as I walk around Washington. It's not the hotel Washington anymore. It's not set up that way on the roof anymore. Um, but they still have parties there and I still go, um, and, uh, um, you know, Howard Johnson's, it isn't there anymore across from the Watergate. Um, so, so I think of it really very much as I walk around the city I match what I see to what is in that movie and what has changed, what hasn't changed. 
both in the visual and in the political and in the <laughs> media, all of that. You know, imagine what Watergate would have been if we'd had Twitter back then. <laughs> I can't. I mean, look, <laughs> I do want to say, I want to make a confession. I do want to read Nixon's Twitter. Like, I do. <laughs> I do. I, I I might be a sicko. You might, whatever. I'm fine. I'm fine if you say that. But, like, I just pause for a second. like, God. You know, it's like, a shame because he was a person of extraordinary ability and talent. And he was just eaten up alive by ego. a sense of bitterness. No, a sense of bitterness. And and uh, he he... He hated the Kennedys. He thought they, they were everything he could stand. They were wealthy. They were attractive. They were socially uh, comfortable. And, um, and he always felt that people like that, everything came to them easily. Yes. And my father, by the way, just so you know, I'm not the only one who, who walks through history. My father was there during the Kennedy-Nixon debate. My father was one of the founders of the presidential debates, and he was there at that first debate in Chicago. It was, oh and the God. person who conducted the debate was my dad's college roommate, Sandy Van Oker. Oh, my goodness. The infamous, like, wiping the sweat? Yeah, all of that. Yep, 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 yep. That was in Chicago, which is where I'm from, and, and, and my dad was there. And my dad, age 94, is still the vice chair of the Presidential Debates Commission. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. God yeah. bless him. That's a whole other story. That's I've a... met six presidents. I've had a very exciting life. I just, the most important president that you met was in 1973, falling apart in the White House a full year <laughs> before he resigned. May, 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 maybe, maybe the most important <laughs> for this podcast. Um, yeah, for this podcast, right. It's absolutely. Look, Nell, this has been so fantastic. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave our minute here because I'm going to demand that you come back and talk about another one of your favorite minutes at another point in 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 the run of this show in the year that it's going forward thank you so much Love for being too. a part of all the president's minutes this is a pleasure i feel like i've just been on a tour well in washington virtually um over thought processes and sort of getting the textures of what it would have been like because one of the big themes of this movie for me is like what it would have actually meant to people who are there um, to make a movie that's so entangled with that like primary source that's being made as these things Come are unfolding. Come to Washington. I'll give you a Watergate tour. Done. Done. <laughs> For folks listening, I, I am definitely going. I might be in America in the end of the year, and I'm staying in touch with Nell to, to wander the streets of Washington. Thank you so much. Terrific. This has been wonderful. Thank you. Wow. What a time. A time slightly before COVID-19, I recorded this with the amazing Nell Minow at N-M-I-N-O-W on Twitter. She's wonderful. Go check her out. And uh, uh, I still would love to be in the States by the end of the year. I still would love to take that tour with Nell. Thank you so much again for listening to all the President's Minutes and anything on the One Heat Minute Productions feed. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and producer of Increment Vice, as well as everything that's been happening on the One Heat Minute Productions feed. If you want to follow me, simply go to at OneBlakeMinute on Instagram and on Twitter, or to OneHeatMinute.com to find out everything that's happening with the show and about the show. If you guys want to support us, we have a link on OneHeatMinute.com to our Patreon. 
If you can spare even a couple of bucks a month, the cost of a coffee a month you are going to be contributing to this show, The Amazing Increment Vice, and any other amazing shows that are a part of One Heat Minute Productions. Thank you so much in advance. If you can't support us, you don't have the cash, that's totally fine. But please, subscribe, rate, review, and share the shows. We would love, if you are digging the show, share them with like-minded film folk around the place. Thank you so much once again for listening to this episode. We'll catch you on another episode of All the President's Minutes and another episode in the One Heat Minute Productions feed very soon.